All right, you are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I'm Brian Benham. And I'm Greg Porter. And tonight we are here, or today, depending on what time you're listening to this, with Eric Gorgeous. Uh, Eric is a bike builder who is on the Discovery Channel in the Great Biker Build-Off. You may know him from there, but he's also got a show on PBS that's called The Craftsman's Legacy. And it it was on PBS, I understand, and now it's actually on YouTube, so you can catch, I think, season five and beyond on YouTube. Am I getting that right, Eric? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you here with us to chat this evening. Uh, before I forget about it, Eric's website is voodoochoppers.com, and uh, do you want to shout out your social media real quick for everybody? The uh, Craftsman's Legacy, um, you know, on Instagram and, and, and Facebook and whatnot, and then Voodoo Choppers, Facebook and, and Instagram and, and all that. So, there and then go. YouTube is uh, Craftsman's Legacy. Perfect. For those who don't know, uh, and Eric and, and Brian and I were talking a little bit before we hit the record button. Some people know Eric from the motorcycle world, and some people know him from the television world. Uh, I want to back up and start probably even before the motorcycles. You worked with a guy that uh, I have great reverence for, Ron Fournier. And I hope I'm saying his last name right. I've never met Ron, but I've read his books. And uh, he was a huge inspiration to me back when I got into metalworking. But you were building hot rods for him or with him. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ron Fournier. And um, when I decided I wanted to get into metalwork, um, Ron had a shop that was, you know, a couple of cities over from where I was living. And uh, I went over there and, and um, you know, we sort of hit it off real early on. And uh, about a year later, he took me on as an apprentice and I spent a couple of years working with Ron. <clears throat> Pardon me. And it was, it was fantastic because, you know, Ron was, uh, you know, he was a phenomenal fabricator and, and shaper, metal shaper. And, um he had just done it for so long he knew what was going to happen you know and uh, i learned so much from him and uh, i'm grateful for the time i spent with him you know the the little that i've seen of ron i say the little I, you know I've, I've studied the stuff that he's put out there for people to look at yeah he's he seems like his approach to problem solving is a unique approach and in that just how how he approaches it, and I, I suppose, and you may have a little more insight into this than I do, um, that that he's just been handed so many oddball problems that you you get this innate sense of what to do next. I mean, some of the building a car is very complex for those people who, who've never done it before. And even if you're doing restoration work, it can be extraordinarily, extraordinarily complex with regard to uh, the order of operations, what happens next, how do you how do you close this gap that seems unclosable? Is did how much did you pick up from him? I guess in just your approach to doing problem A or problem B. Quite a bit, probably. You know, um, the thing about it is, uh, you know, the size of the project really is irrelevant, right? It's one thing at a time, and knowing the order of operations, as you say is really important but the clarity and the ability to you know sort of play chess with it a little bit and look five moves six moves seven moves down the road on a project comes with time and experience right like the way you would approach a project um as an apprentice 
would be vastly different than somebody who's been, you know, doing it for 20 years. You know what I mean? Because they're going to have that, that, that history, that knowledge base of knowing like, okay, I need to look at this because there's an intersection point here. And then I've got a collision issue here. And, you know, you, you sort of see those traps ahead of time. Whereas, you know, when, when you're starting out, that's, that's how you're learning is by finding those traps. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know if that I, makes I, sense. It, it does. And I often say, or I often think it, I, I do share it with people that you learn by making the mistakes. So you have to make every yeah. mistake one time and then you learn not to do it again. And every once in a while you find a really great mentor or instructor that can see you getting ready to make the mistake and tell you, this is what's going to happen. If you stop doing it this way and start doing it that way, you can avoid, you know, this, this thing, but you have to step through everyone. One of my good friends, uh, gosh, back when I was framing houses, he taught me carpentry and he said, you have to pay your tuition, whether you pay it yeah. in school or you pay it in the school of hard knocks, you got to pay your tuition. Yeah. 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 And that's really, you know, at the end of the day, my daughter's in college and um, I, I tell her all the time, I, I say, you know, sweetie, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter um, if you want to be good at something, it's, it's going to be hard work. It, there's just no way around it. You know, you, 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 it's just a lot of hard work. You're going to have ups, you're going to have downs. And, but at the end of the day, you got to just, uh, you know, keep, keep that focus and, and, and keep moving forward and, and realize that over time, you might lose ground every once in a while, but over time, you're going to gain a lot of ground, you know, and uh, it's just life, you know? So was yeah. he, uh, was he a big inspiration on your current design style for your uh, for your bikes that you build, or did you have something that really puts you down this path of like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go build bikes? No, uh, the bikes. So Ron um, was doing mostly restoration work and really high end, um, rare collectible cars, like one of six type cars, you know, one of three type cars, that type of stuff. Um, but I, when I started with him, I told him like, Hey, I'm doing this because I want to, you know, open up a motorcycle shop and I want to be able to build custom bikes. And, you know, so it was, it was very separate. And, you know, the thing about, you know, really no matter if it's woodworking or no matter what field you're getting into, when you're making something, unless you're duplicating design, which is a whole other craft in and of itself, right? You have to find your own style, your way, your look. And for me, that was definitely something that just evolved over time, you know. And early on when 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 I started Voodoo, um, it was sort of like, you know, you would, you know, you would take I'd take on work just to have work, right? Just to keep money rolling. And it didn't really matter if I liked it or not. And back then I didn't have a name. You know, you couldn't I couldn't sell on previous work. Right. Um, so you built what the client wanted. And I, I built a bunch of stuff that wasn't necessarily my style. And I tried to infuse some of my style in it. But I, I learned from that still. But over time, um, my style developed and developed and continued that. And then it got to a point where, where you know, people that were into motorcycles, into custom handmade motorcycles could recognize my bikes without they could do it from they could recognize it from a distance without even seeing it. Uh, up close and seeing a name on it, you know, because um, that's just that 
that just happens as a, as a builder, you know, put enough stuff out there. People start to realize, Hey, that looks kind of like an Eric gorgeous going by there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll hear, you know, I've heard it many, many, many times from people and they're like, you know, I saw, I, you know, I was over here and I saw a bike and I was like, man, that's a voodoo. And, and, you know, and, and then sure enough, I walked up on it and I saw the tag on the seat or, you know, I saw the, uh, you know, the stamp on the tank or whatever it is. You know what I mean? So ah, cool. So when you're, uh, when you're starting on a new build, I was watching your Instagram and it looked like you're, I, am I assuming correct that this is a new project that you're starting on? The one I've been posting on Instagram lately is a knucklehead uh, project that we're getting involved in. And um, I've been building a frame for it. And, you know, the, the funny thing is, man, I started that frame um, like in June of 22 with the intent of rolling right into, you know, making that frame. So I started doing all the machining and I had to do a bunch of fixture work for it and everything else. And, um, and then, you know, a bunch of other projects that were in the shop sort of got in the way and I needed to, you know, help out there. So <laughs> I had to set the knuckle project off to the side for a minute and uh, I got back on it in December, I think. And, you know, it's a pretty complicated frame, but I'm not fast at anything anymore. <laughs> you yeah. know, like you know, the only thing that's with me that's come with time is, is uh i'm way more meticulous you know like every time i do something i'm more and more and more meticulous about it and i, I pay more attention to every little detail you know which yeah. i like you know um and i don't really care about how long something takes yeah it's kind of like more of the the more you know the more you don't know and then the more that you know the more particular you become about the things you don't know trying to make it all fit just perfect yeah. And, the, you know, like I was saying earlier, you, you, you start, you think about things, you know, farther in advance, you know, how cables are going to route, how electrical is going to route, you know, a lot of, a lot more usability as far as like getting access to, you know, the battery and, you know, oil tank and things like that. Like stuff when I was younger, building younger, I didn't, I didn't care so much about it. I was like, oh yeah, we'll stuff the battery under here. It'll be impossible to get to. You'll have to <laughs> remove the starter to get to it or whatever. And and you're like, oh, but it looks so cool, you know? And then you start thinking about this stuff more and you're like, yeah, there's other ways of doing that. And it still looks kick-ass, but um, it's, it's way more serviceable, you know? It's the form and function refinement mm -hmm. over time. And I think, so you don't know this, Eric, but I'm an architect, right? And so in our studio, we we cover some pretty complex problems. And I talk all the time about the clean white box is the hardest damn thing to design because there's so much to making it clean. And I think when you look at well-defined or well-refined um, whether it's going to a car show and seeing some of the custom cars that the, you know, top tier builders are putting out, or it's motorcycles that the top tier guys are putting out. There's a level of cleanliness and refinement where, you know, uh, the way a fender attaches to a front fork isn't, isn't by accident. Every little bolt and detail is there on purpose and it's been refined to the to the point where it's like that is a kick-ass way to do that. And if you change one little detail, it starts to unravel just a little bit. Yeah, and that um, simplistic style is definitely a key attribute in 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 my uh, style of building. 
you know, I, I like to make uh, all of the bikes look incredibly simple to the eye, you know, and, and, and the, but the more you dive into it, the more you look, the more you see, the more detail you see, the more unravels and the, the more complex it actually becomes. But unless you pay the, t- pay attention and really look and dig into it, you wouldn't notice, it. you know, you would, if somebody was walking by it, they'd say, Oh, that's sort of a cool bike maybe. But for the person that truly appreciates, um, a handmade motorcycle and they spend some time looking at things, they're going to be, you know, re- well rewarded with that, uh, because they, they, you know, see what went into it, you know, and, um, and the most of the clients I'm working for now, they, that's what they want. They like that, you know, and, and, uh, I love getting calls from, from clients six, eight months, a year later. And they're like, dude, I just saw how you did this. And, you know, something they didn't catch and it took them that long to find it. But, you know, I was washing the bike and I saw this and man, that was, I can't believe you did that. You know and it's like? That's what it's all about. That's the funnest part for me, you know? So little Easter eggs and things that they just discover as you're, as you're going. Now, do you ever get to see your, your bikes years down the road to see how the design ages? Oh yeah. 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 Some of our clients, like, um somewhere in i'm in detroit you know there's uh, a number of our bikes in this area and in michigan um and then there's bikes all over the place and some of them they ship back for regular maintenance work and stuff like that um so i get to see the bikes over time and um you know the shop doesn't we don't do maintenance and stuff like that for for people uh anymore really but we, you know, handle our own bikes and, you know, what we've built. We, we so, so if a so, client that, or just a stranger came into the shop that had a bike built by somebody else, you don't do the maintenance, but you maintain your, if I was a yeah. client and I bought a bike from you, you would make maintenance. Is what we you're take saying. care of it. Yeah. Yeah. We take care of it for you. So, yeah. uh, so what I really kind of am curious about, cause I, I design a fair amount of things that go out in the world. And then when I, a client may call me to build another thing. And so I go to their house and I see the thing that I built. And sometimes I'm like, oh, that's really cool. It looks awesome still. And there's other times I'm like, man, what was I thinking? Why is that at such a weird angle? Do you ever have those kind of things when you look at the bike and you're like, oh, that's cool. Or, oh, that that didn't work out too well. Or It's usually um, how I went about doing it, right? Like if I see a bike that I did 10 or, you know, 15 years ago or something like that, and I'll see how I did it and I'll be like, oh, wow, you know, like. I remember when I was doing things like that. And, and so it's, it's not as much of a design uh, question as it is how I went about it, you know, and, and, and that goes back to bringing more complexity into uh, the design or the element that I'm working on. You know, I can make any uh, simple element be incredibly complex and take forever to build. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think uh, I can relate to that. There are times where I uh, uh, I designed a desk that had these little copper inserts and there was a whole bunch of them on all sides of this thing. And by the time I got to the last inset that I had to hand cut into this desk, I was like, I'm never designing a desk like that again. That was, that was so much work to do all that. Yeah, so, but you know, I'm drawn to that. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy the challenge of it and I enjoy uh, the reward of of it when it's done. And like, you know, like I was saying, you know, like um, I've uh, um, a lot of our bikes will be rigid frames. So there's no suspension in the frame. 
and we'll do spring seats on it, which I find very comfortable. But on the you know, seat pan, you know, a, t- a lot of times I'll spend tons of time on detailing the bottom of the seat pan that, you know, 95% of the people will never even see, see it, you know, yeah. but the minute you flip it over and you see, you know, 200 rivets on it and all these pillows and stuff like that done on it. And, and uh, you know, it's pretty cool, man, you know, and, yeah. and uh, I'll send it to the, uh, to my leather guy and I'll be like, dude, I, I need this, uh, you know, done up. And, and he, he's like, what the fuck you know who spends this much time on the bottom of the seat pan you know but i do yeah i think a lot of craftsmen uh, really get into the zen of that kind of stuff that just like head down zen out and just kind of kind of go for it yeah it's I, just fun i i heard you mention uh machining earlier so how far down that rabbit hole do you go one of my things has always been fasteners like i'm just oh yeah I don't, I don't, I fascinated with fastener sounds kind of cheesy, but it's like, man, you have to have the right fastener, whether it's an oval head or a pan head or a flat head yeah. or a countersunk or uh, a socket head or fill in the blank. Like I feel like I could go on for hours here, but uh, from the machining end of things, when you get into custom things and you need a bolt, that's not three quarters of an inch. It's not five eighths, but it's somewhere in the middle and maybe we shave it. Maybe it's got to be, you know, drop into a, a counterbore or something. So we got to shave the head down. How far do you get with that stuff? How far do you let yourself go down that rabbit hole, I guess? Oh, we've made uh, fasteners, mm-hmm. you know, hand up, handmade fasteners for particular projects and things like that. So, yeah, you know, it's like the special things about life, right, is over the years, I, I, I've put together two two shops that are very well equipped and we can make anything I want. So it's really just a matter of like figuring out how we're going to make it if we can't find it. And that's, you know, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Cause sometimes it's like, you know, we're looking for something super simple and we can't find it. And I'm like, yeah, we'll just make it. Don't worry about it. You know, but it eats up time making something super simple. You know, it's like, you know, we really need a, a, a tea, a brass tea with, you know, eighth inch NPTs on it, you know, you know, quarter inch NPT feet or something like that. And, and it's like, you know, yeah, well, I can't find anything cool. These all look like, you know, the crap, they just look mass produced. So we'll, we'll just make yeah. something, you know, and, uh, but that's the fun part of it too. You know, like there's no, you're the only limitation really. Yeah. I, I guess I look at it like, you know, you look at gun stocks and things of that nature where the guys get in there and, and do the checkering and all of that. Oh, and it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You can, you can have a very simple, smooth gun stock and it works just fine. Or you can have this kick-ass checkered thing that's, you know, got floor to lee or, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, cool engraving and initials and three-dimensional stuff. And it's like, okay, you just made that gun stock cost a hundred times what the gun itself would cost to just make but it's going to be one of a kind and it's going to be the coolest damn gun that hangs on a wall, you know, of anybody I know. Um, and I, I could totally see, I don't, I don't build motorcycles that I never have, but I could totally see just being this endless rabbit hole of just awesome stuff that you could put together. It is. Yeah, it is totally, you know, but that's, I don't know. I didn't start building bikes to make money. You know what I mean? Like I, I did it for different reasons. So I don't worry about it, man. I never worry about how much time something takes me. It's when it's done, it's done. And when it's ready, it's ready. You know, that's awesome. But That's a, it's sorry. definitely a deep rabbit hole, my friend. <laughs> 
Yeah, I could tell. All those little uh, little pieces probably just add up to really to the design language of the whole piece. Just the subtle little details that a lot of people don't know, like the under piece of the seat. But as a whole, that really makes it pop. I think so. You know, there was a, a period in time when, um, you know, you'd be I would be asked to like be a judge at a bike show or something like that. And I always spent a lot of time on every bike looking at how things were mounted, you know, how things were done, because you can add paint and bondo and filler and everything else to just about anything and make it look really cool you know what i mean but you pay attention to how people mount things you pay attention to how how much time people spend on the smaller details and it's a better telltale of how much time they spend on the whole project the whole build overall you know yeah so you were talking about uh paying attention to where the battery goes and all that um when you're designing a bike and you have like this vision in your head and uh, you realize like, okay, I need to make it street legal. So I got to have a certain size taillights or taillights have to be in a certain place. Does that kind of stuff like limit your design or are you able to really just blend it all together? Nah, you, you can work around most of that. You know what I mean? Like you can work around pretty much everything. It's just how you package it, really how you look at it. Right. Yeah. If, um, if you look at, uh, turn signal uh, to use your example right so it, like if you were to look at a turn signal as just being a turn signal um, then you're bound within that frame right that architecture of a of a turn signal right but now if you look at it as what if it wasn't a turn signal but it functioned as a turn signal right now now you have a much bigger box to explore and a much wider range of things to explore and you're not really confined by that idea i don't I don't know if turn signal is a good you know analogy or not but maybe i didn't make sense no i think it it's a perfect sense like uh let's say you're you're trying to design a dragon that has to have a turn signal so the turn signal could be like the dragon's eye kind of a thing and then you design right, the yeah, entire exactly, dragon man. all the way like, around it yeah you know if you if if you look at everything like that's the only thing it can be then you're going to be bound within those limitations but if you start looking at things like well you know what if it could be something else and it just happened to also function as this as item, a turn signal yeah. you know or whatever it is right like then now you're able to really do whatever you want you know and you can make it whatever you want and I like to look at like older boats, older bikes, bicycles, automobiles, automobiles. And, you know, you look at the design in a lot of those pieces, you know, it was just, it was such a different time for design and manufacturing. And, and um, there's a lot of inspiration in that, you know what I mean? And, and you look at like the simplest item on a boat, right? Like say a, a cleat, right? Like a, a rope cleat or a line cleat or whatever you want to call it. And, but if you look back in the thirties about, you know, and you look at how some of those were designed and developed, it was like, wow, like that is beautiful just by itself. Right. Yeah. It just happens to function as a cleat, you know, but there's, you know, speed lines in it and the, and the, the, you know, the flow of it and, and the overall balance of the piece is, uh, is there. And, and, uh, there's a lot there you know it's it, like like i said earlier it's incredibly complicated but simple in design you know simple to the eye it's interesting eric you you talk about those pieces and parts like that i had a conversation with a with a coworker of mine the other day about sort of the era between call it the late 70s and maybe uh into 
eh, late 90s, early 2000s, I, I feel like the world lost its design sense. Cars became very square. Things mm -hmm. became very boring. You know, look at a look at a locomotive, uh, you know, the the art deco locomotives of the day. And then, you know, you fast forward to the the trains that were built the the engines that were built in the 70s and they just got this big box that was wrapped around a motor it's like how how little sheet metal and labor can we put together to make this thing go and cars were the same like you know look at a, a fender on a oh gosh like a caprice classic or something like that from the 80s and it's it's literally like one fold in a wheel arch opening and that's it like if you were trying to replicate it you could you could do it blindfolded pretty much and yeah. what what I've seen that's been very interesting, and it's it's down to those details, right? Like like the cleat on a boat, and you know, do you put in lines? And and you look at it, it seemed like it was somewhere in the seventies. Everything just got like, how quick can we make this? How cheap? Everything became commoditized, and and it was that way in architecture. It's that way in automobiles. It's that way in industrial design. Kind of all the way down the line, you know, some of the. I, I suppose some of the bikes out of the the seventies and and eighties were all right, but it, but it it really did. It became that you know how many how many frames can AMF kick out and and when we fast forward to what I would call like the late nineties, early two thousands, all of a sudden there was this massive resurgence of craftsmanship. Hey, there's somebody here with a design eye that's going to look at this and make imagine what it could be. It's not. What is, what's the lowest common denominator, simplest, easiest, most straightforward mass manufactured way to do this, but how can we make this thing elegant and how can we make it really cool again? And, you know, when I, when I, when I put you in perspective of when everything happened, you know, with your motorcycle building and then, then the leaping off from there, you're part of that group that started that wave. And it's still going now. I, I see it in the guitar. I, I'm into guitars. Really? I'm super into guitars. And and it was the same thing. Uh, you know, all of these sort of boring mass produced, everybody's the same things happened. And then all of a sudden there was a resurgence. But on on your end of things, how how do you see that? How did you how did you fit in with that? Because you were kind of on the front end of that as as I uh as I recall. I think you were Late nineties is when you started your your bike shop, right? Yes, sir. Yep. Um I, I I don't know. You know, I I grew up around woodworking and and so the idea of working with your hands and the respect uh and what you gained from that um was 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 with me since I was a little boy. When I had made a decision that I wanted to work with my hands for a bit. I didn't, I, I, like I said earlier, you know, I didn't do it to make money. I didn't do it. I did it because it was a challenge and I could do whatever I wanted to do. Right. Like, yeah. and that was really the, the, the big thing, you know, like, well, I wanted to learn how to become a metal shaper so that I could make whatever I want. You know, I didn't have to buy somebody else's fuel tank that they designed. And now I'm reinterpreting their design. Their design is still there. I've just reinterpreted it by, you know, axing the sides or, 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 you know, shaving it or whatever you want to do. You know, their design is still there. I wanted to say, I, I'm going to make it like this and this is how I'm going to make it, you know, and, and, and then be able to do that and execute on it. 
So I don't even know if I answered your question properly or not, man. But it doesn't I, matter. I, so I, I, I wrote a book and we published a book in 99. And we did a lot of research when, when we were writing the book. And that was one of the things we researched was this idea of design, it, if, especially from items, you know, in the, in the early 1900s and, and even before then, right? Like, you know, you, you had a gentleman or, or, or a lady that was being paid to work at, at a factory, say, and, and they were tasked with making this part. They were being paid to be there, but it was almost like they had, you know, they wanted to put their own stamp on it. They wanted to put themselves in that part. And that's what it meant to them, you know, and but hell, I don't know, man, but that's, that's what I would like to believe, right? Like they, even though they were only tasked to make a cleat, right, for, for a boat, and they knew it was going to be cast in, in, in brass, they still wanted to be able to put their personality, you know, into that piece, their soul into that piece. And, and that's something, you know, the idea of being a craftsman, for me has always been this like iconic thing, right? It's like, it's a, it's a goal to have somebody refer to you as a craftsman, like that, you know, she's a, a fine craftsman or he's a fine craftsman like that. That's a, like a, a, an honor in my eyes, you know, to be considered that. But in order to get to that stage, I think you need to be able to spend the time and, and, and put yourself into that piece and make sure that, you know, you're a part of you is in that design in, in, how that was created. I think that's a lot of what uh, a lot of uh, people's struggles are these days that everything is become such a corporation and the corporation has their uh, standards that you have to follow. Like this is how you do it. You can't deviate from the sure. standards. So nobody feels like they have any ownership in their, in their job. I worked as a salesman for a big box store selling building materials for a little while. And it was a soul crushing job. You were not allowed to have any kind of creativity or do it the own way. They had a script that you had to stick to when you were talking to the clients sure. and it was, it was just soul crushing. And that was one of the things um, when uh, that's one of the things that pushed me over the edge to where I was like, I have to start my own business. And that's what got me started in my own business is that I was just like, I want to make my own thing and I want to have ownership over it and express myself. And I think that a lot of people, why, why you get such bad service from some places just because that person just has no ownership in their, in their job. Like, like you can, when you work with your hands. Oh, I, I, I agree with that. I grew up doing electric work with my dad. He was a journeyman electrician and one of my first days on the job. So I started working in commercial buildings, doing electric work at age 12, if you can believe that. So not even a teenager yet. And uh, my dad kind of followed me around and checked all my work. And one of the first things that he taught me was that all the screws go straight up. And, and I was like, well, yeah, dad, that's a waste of time. And he's like, that's the mark of a craftsman. That mm -hmm. lets someone know that you cared when you mm -hmm. stopped turning that screw. He's like, it doesn't matter. It's not going to hold it together any better or anything else. He goes, but if you have that attention to detail, when you put the screws at 12 o'clock, what attention to detail are you going to have on, you know, for the wires inside of that box, the conduit that's hanging from the ceiling, all of the other things. And I, I really do. And this sounds like the old man and me talking, but I feel like as a, as a country for sure, we've lost that. I, I think if you rewound to the folks making bombers uh, back in the day and, you know, some of those technicians, uh, gosh, I, I still think about it. Uh, my, 
my wife's grandfather, uh, his job title was sheet metal, uh, sheet metal technician for TWA. And, you know, he did, he did sheet metal work on, on the airplanes and took immense amount of pride in his work. And, you know, to this day, I, I've got a TWA toolbox in my garage and, you know, just the way things are set in that toolbox, there, there's a whole story behind it. And it's, it's a different mentality. And, and like I say, that that was that group, the the World War II aged guys. And then there was this bizarre gap. Like we lost our minds. We forgot <laughs> where we came from or or we lost it a little bit. Uh, but but I do think, and you know, sort of the the pie-eyed guy in me is like, I, I do think it's coming back around. And I, I guess one of the things we've talked an awful lot about motorcycles, Eric, but you've got a show. That that is about craftsmanship, and mm-hmm. as as you shared with me, you're talking to people in the textile industry, in the glass blowing industry, uh, probably in the carpentry uh, arenas, welding, metalwork, all of those things. So you probably get to see it from all different angles. What are you seeing now that that maybe wasn't uh, here 20 years ago, or as prominent 20 years ago? You know, I I think nowadays there's there's definitely more and more people that are interested in in working with their hands so you know whether it's learning to forge metal or you know uh, get into woodworking or or you know pottery or glass or whatever there's more and more people that are interested in in pursuing that which i'm very happy for you know started sort of putting that show together in like 20 10 2012 somewhere around there and a lot of it stemmed from i would receive a lot of letters you know handwritten letters from 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 people all over the place or phone calls from people all over the place and they they wanted to get into bike building or they wanted to learn how to become a bike builder and and if i had an opportunity to to talk to them i would always ask them what are you what are you doing about that now most of the time the answer revolved around I want to do this, but I can't because of this, right? Or I really want to learn how to weld, but I don't have a welder, so I can't learn how to weld. How can I learn how to weld without a welder? I'd be like, well, have you read any books on welding or basic metallurgy at all to at least start familiarizing yourself with what's going on behind the practice? And then maybe look at a community college or if you go to a local welding store, there's almost always somebody there that, you know, you can pay to help you out you know what i mean like there's mm-hmm. a lot of ways around these problems man these are not big problems they're big problems for you because you're making them big problems but if you take a couple steps back and and get out of that forest a little bit and now you start seeing it and you're like all right all right you know and that was really you know one of the principles for developing the show was that you know i i wanted to be able to show people that there there's craftsmen all over the place, right? There's men and women all over the place that make a fine living working with their hands. And sometimes what they're doing takes a very long time just to make one, right? But they invested that time to learn how to do it. And they're constantly trying to become better at what they're doing, you know? And they're they give back to the idea of that skill set, which which I also think is important, right? Like as a craftsman, you're borrowing the information, right? It's your challenge to add to that and then give it away as fast as you can when you're yeah. at that stage that you can give it away, right? But 
you should always be giving that knowledge away, man. It, it, it's not yours to begin with. You know what I mean? And, and um, so those are like, those are really important principles for me. Um, and I, and I see more and more people do that, you know what I mean? Which is really cool. Cause I've met a lot of people who, um, you know, like we do a bike show or something and I, you know, we bring a, a small English wheel with us or something. And I, I do some shaping there or something. And, and it was really cool because, you know, a lot of people would come up and they'd want to, they'd ask questions. What's that? What's going on? And, you know, it was maybe when wheels weren't as common, you know, as, as, as they are uh, today or common knowledge, I should say, as they are today, you know, some people will be like, dude, what are you doing? You can't do that. I'm like do what, you know, well, you should charge for that. I'm like, charge for what, man? Like <laughs> we're just having fun, dude, you know, calm down. Don't worry about it. Yeah. There's a lot of mac and cheese. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of fun in that. Uh, a few years ago, uh, art gallery that I was involved in, uh, every Friday they had like an art walk and, and the art gallery owner says, hey, why don't you come and demonstrate some kind of woodworking thing with hand tools? And I was like, okay, so I decided to demonstrate inlaying uh, uh, bow ties just by hand was just, you know, no power tools, just me, a mallet, a chisel and a, a chunk of wood and some bow ties and just sat in the uh, outside in front of the uh, the building, just sitting on some sawhorses, inlaying some bow ties. And this little girl walks up and she's like, hey, can I try? And I was like, absolutely. And so she did a really good job, like just giving her some the things like her mom was like a total basket case. Like, be careful. Those are sharp and don't hurt yourself. And I was like, come on, Karen, it'll be fine. Everybody needs their yeah. first stitches somehow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah but yeah so just yeah. getting over that fear and just having someone show you and that's that's into it it's just a lot of fun well i learned it a long long time ago so gosh when i came out of school i was doing computer renderings and it was like the first group of people that had that knowledge you know i was literally first version of the software and everybody i, I had a rule that if anybody asked me how to do it, I would tell them anything they wanted to know. And there were a group of people who were like, whoa, 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 keep this a secret. There's only a few of us who know how to do it. And it was sort of that self-preservation. And I shared with somebody one time, I said, here's the thing. And it's it's this way, whether it's computer stuff, whether it's metalworking, welding, carpentry, painting, you name it. If somebody wants to know how to do it, they're gonna know how to do it. Whether you share share it with them, or whether somebody else does, they're going to figure it out because they have a passion and they have a drive. They're going to find out. So there's no reason to hold back. Let it rip. Share everything that you want to know with them. And there's a pretty good chance they'll share something back that you didn't know. And But it's just interesting to see. And I, I found that uh, when I started doing body work, it was the same thing. I, I went to a body shop like, hey, man, I got some dents in my car. Uh, I want to learn how to fix them. Is there somebody I could talk to that can just help me understand the process? This is before YouTube and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. This is back in the late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, you, you either had to buy a book, which Barnes and Noble didn't really exist at that point, or you had to find somebody who knew how to do it. I can remember just getting completely turned away at the body shop, like everything in here is a secret. You can't see what we're doing. And it it turned me off of, of body work. And I finally found uh, some single guy who ran a one-man shop. And uh, I, I can still tell you it was uh, Kirby 
Kirby, gosh, Kirby Wilson. There we go. Wilson Auto Body, Kirby Wilson. And he just ran a one-man show, did a lot of uh, uh, car flipping in his spare time when he didn't have wrecks to work on that customers brought in. And I took my car down there and I said, I gave it a shot. You know, I, I worked the metal out. I, I put some body filler on there. And he's like, okay, we got to work on this a little bit. And he gave me some pointers of what did I do wrong and how could I do it better next time? And then I gave him the car for a week. He did, you know, some sanding and some other things to kind of get it in shape. And he's like, there's what it needs to look like. So the next one that you do, there's your example of how to make it look before. That's how it has to look like before paint. And it was Complete, he didn't have to do that. Completely yeah. eye-opening. And it it just, to your point, I went to the community college. I took an adult education body shop class where you could bring in your own stuff, brought in doors and hoods off of cars that were yeah. you know out of the junkyard. And I learned how to metal work and, you know, the bullseye pick, all the stuff that, you know, those little secrets that nobody wants to show you how to do. Or, and so to, to your point, it's incredibly important to pass that on. Kirby Wilson affected my life in a very positive way. From, from that day forward, I was doing all kinds of metal work and paint prep and everything else. And I would tell you at this point in my life, I'm, I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> man, so it's cool, man. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know, man, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're here to help each other. Right. And to enjoy yeah. life and to enjoy the journey. Right and to to better other people's lives and um you know you're not going to do that being an asshole so <laughs> uh so you and i kind of took a little bit different uh paths i my first job was in a metalworking shop and then i got really deep into woodworking and uh then now i'm kind of trying to combine metalworking and woodworking in my in my art and you said or mentioned i didn't know this about you until you just said that that you started in woodworking uh, when you're young and then went into metalworking. And now uh, when I watch your YouTube channel, you're getting back into woodworking. So I'm curious, like, how are you finding that those two relate to each other? Are you finding a lot of skills transferable? Oh, 100%. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. I, so I grew up around woodworking, right? My granddad was a was a, a master cabinet maker. And my, my dad was, was what you'd consider a serious hobbyist, you know, and um, I grew up around that um, and I always enjoyed it. Right. And then when I decided I was going to, to work with my hands uh, and make things for a living, I was really torn between woodworking and metalworking. I either wanted to like really dive deep and get into furniture making uh, and cabinetry work and, and go down that road or, you know, go down the metal road and, and eventually, you know, start a business building motorcycles and and honestly the reason i chose metal work was because i didn't know anything about it you know but and i loved torch work you know hot work i i i didn't know much about it at the time but i was really intrigued by it and and working with hot metal and things like that um and that's how it went and i and and you know 20 some years ago, I always told myself, I was like, one day I'm going to get back into woodworking and really increase my skill set there. And then probably about six years ago now, I started doing that and started buying some, you know, woodworking uh, equipment and then built out a wood shop. And, um, and it's been great. I've been loving it because uh, the I love the metal shop. I love working there, um, but it's a totally different vibe than my wood shop. You know, my wood shop is like nice and warm and it's got a 
cool smell in the air, you know, and it's all these hand tools and, you know, different power tools and things like that. And, and it's all so challenging, you know what I mean? And, and challenging in a different way, right? Like the metal shop is like way colder in there and big ceilings and it's loud and, you know, and metal's cold to the touch and, you know, it's just totally different, you know, but the skill set, right? Like a lot of times I'll build something and people will see it and they're like, well, did you build that from a plan or where did you get the plans for it? I'm like, no, <laughs> dude, why would I build it from plans? I just drew it up, you know, like, but I have that knowledge from all my time metal working and laying out, doing layouts and metal. Work, yeah. You know? And, that's... you know, and so all those skill sets and the hand-eye coordination and the dexterity of your hands and, you know, knowing how to use tool properly, how to hold a tool properly. Like that's one thing that I think a lot of people today that are starting out and they're, they're, you know, woodworking or whatever, they don't take the time to understand how to hold tool, a tool properly or to understand exactly what that tool is doing, you know? Like I'll post a short video of doing a, um, using a, a, a router and, and, you know, doing a feed cut on it and people will blow up, you know, just telling me, I don't know what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. You're doing it wrong. You're going to hurt yourself. And it's like, dude, I understand what you're saying, right? Cutting with the feed is, is, is definitely very challenging. And it's, it's, uh, looked down upon in a lot of situations, especially by hand. Uh, but if you understand what it is you're trying to accomplish and you understand the tool that you're using and you understand the cutter and how the cutter works and you're able to work with that you'll get a much finer cut and yeah. sometimes it's okay but if you go into it just blind because you've read from five other people that have told you how dangerous it is and you don't really understand what it is that tool is doing to begin with then yeah i can understand your point you know, but you, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But... Oh, I could go on a, on a three day rant about people <laughs> t telling me I'm doing it wrong because they watch so-and-so from so-and-so do it. And they said that, that you shouldn't do that because it's dangerous, but sometimes it's not as dangerous as you think it is. If you have the experience behind it and you know, what's, you know what to expect. Yeah. I'm, and I'm... I never, you know, I, I, I'm never a jerk about it right like i'm always like you know thanks for looking out for me man i appreciate it you know like i get it you know um but i just wish that, that i don't know man i i like to dive in all the way you know when i want to learn how to do something i want to learn how to do it very well and i don't let anything get in my way yeah it's i want to know everything about it and and uh and that's what i constantly strive for you know what i mean so mm -hmm. um i don't know <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of funny. It's all about perspective and, and experience. Like you, uh, uh, a few minutes ago, you said something uh, along the lines that woodworking is so much more challenging than metalworking. And me being a woodworker, wanting to learn more about metalworking, I find metalworking a lot more challenging than woodworking. Uh, I, the projects I'm working on now, I'm I have this big round disc that I make out of metal that I'm going to put some uh, patina colors on it. I and saw in, it on that yeah. design. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And then inlay yeah. it into this uh, table thing. And uh, to cut the the circle out of wood that it's going to get inlaid into was super easy. I just, you know, set up my router like I've done a hundred times, cut the circle and off I go. And then metalworking, I'm like, okay, how am I going to cut this out of metal? I don't really have a whole ton of metalworking <laughs> tools in my shop. And then there's sawdust everywhere. So I don't want to make, make sparks. 
So then I went outside and it was snowing. So I live, <laughs> I live in Colorado. So uh, it's snowing outside and uh, it's freezing cold. And I've just like my only really tool that I had to to make a uh, circle was a grinder. So an uh, angle grinder. So I cut it out with the angle grinder and then tried to uh, ease the edges because, of course, now it's not like this perfect cut that the uh, that the wood that it needs to match to is. And so it was like this whole thing. Of, We're uh, using just, a cutoff wheel on that grinder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's probably the wrong cutoff wheel. It was whatever I just had in the shop, I, you know. Huh. But it made sparks and it cut it. Yeah, you know, the, the friction wheels are 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 great. Um, you know, and cutting an arc or cutting a circle or cutting, you know, a round detail with a, a friction wheel is 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 tricky. It takes a a, a light hand to do that. You know, so good for you, man. That's yeah, because awesome. it it kicked. <laughs> When I when it yeah. poked oh, through, yeah. it's like, it's like, well, okay, pay attention. You got to sneak up on it, man. Yeah, you sneak you hope that it. your metal's a heavy enough gauge that it doesn't just fold and wrinkle right around your tool. You yeah, well, look, yeah, this was uh, probably eighth inch. I'm I'm probably oh, yeah. embarrassing yeah. myself because I don't know what the actual gauges are, but it's about an eighth inch thick is what I was using. Yeah, it's about ten gauge. Yeah, 10 well, gauge. depending on on what it material it is, but it's, yeah, it was mild mild steel. Yeah. Brian, but, you, you know, you, oh. you know where I live, buddy. You can come up and use the plasma cutter or anything else you yeah. want to use. We we yeah. can do it. <laughs> 40, 40 minute drive to save myself some stitches. Yeah, that might have been a better way, but I'm still I'm still good. So okay, worked out. <laughs> I want to I want to share one thing that that I think is interesting. I think it's I think it's a common thread. And when I when I put myself in the position of the listeners who listen to this podcast, I think. There's there's a lot of people who are already makers that are listening to to expand what it is they do. Then there's a probably a group of folks that listen that Eric are like the folks you described earlier. How do I get into X, Y, and Z? And the the thing that I would share about people who are successful making things of any sort, I don't care what it is, it's exactly what Eric said earlier, is you jump in with both feet and you just get it done, whatever it is. And it's it's the type of thing where you don't need a million dollars worth of tools, uh, in Brian's example, to cut an eighth inch uh, arc out of a piece of steel. An angle grinder will do that entire job. You can cut it out rough, you can put on a smoothing disc, you can, you know, for, for $30 at, at the tool store, you can get an angle grinder and three or four different blades and figure out what's going to work for you. It all comes down to the pattern that you want and being picky enough. You can do it with hand files if you want to and a hacksaw. When I started doing metal work, those were the tools I had. And I cut all of my tubing by hand. It took hours and I got really powerful forearms. But, you know, when I had an idea in my head and I would share this with everybody else, when you have an idea in your head that you want to see built, stop at nothing to get it done. Don't be afraid to throw five of them in the trash to get the good one that you want. Because once you get that good one, it's printed so deep in your brain that you'll never forget how to get there. Yeah, so well I, <laughs> I got a little passionate there, but all right, it's all right. It is. So, uh, so to shift uh, shift gears a little bit, uh, I ought to go back to the Craftsman Legacy, and the this uh, one is more more question that my dad would be like, "Why didn't you ask him?" Because mm -hmm. he always uh, 
always told me when I was growing up, like, oh, you should get a TV show like Norm because I was like, I was into woodworking and me and my dad, we would watch this old house of Norm together all the time. So how, how did you fall into the TV show of getting on, on PBS? Yeah. Uh, like how does the world of PBS television work? I guess is my more direct question. That's a whole other podcast, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's that's a, maybe a can of worms I shouldn't have opened. That's a whole other podcast, but you know, uh, I had an idea for a TV show and, uh, I knew a couple people in that business, like from doing past television shows with the motorcycle shop and stuff. So I knew some producers and directors and stuff. And I talked to a couple of them and, you know, that didn't really go anywhere. And, you know, uh, I knew what I wanted to do and, uh, I just went for it. I figured it out as I went along and I, and I, you know, walking through, uh, life alone is is really difficult and not necessary and i made a lot of friends and i had a lot of mentors that helped me get that show off the ground and get it going because they believed in the show they believed in me and they wanted to help me and um and that's how it went man it, it took me years you know like i said I, you know the first early very early developments of that show are probably like 2010 2012 where I've got outlines and like, you know, the basic outline of the show and how it was going to follow and the, you know, timestamps on it and stuff like that, because I really thought that it would be a great show. And, um, and there's so many great stories, you know, to be told and, and, and so many life lessons to be learned, you know, and, and it was important to me, you know, like one of the biggest, most, in my opinion, valuable parts of that show was what we called the apprenticeship. And it's where I spend time with that person trying to learn from them how they do what they do. The whole point of that was to show people, somebody sitting there watching it who really would like to learn how to do something, but they keep throwing these roadblocks in their way, was to show them that, dude, I don't know anything about this, but you got to try it anyways. And you're going to fail and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to screw up, but you're going to learn. And if you keep at it, you're going to get good at it, you know? And, and that, that was really what it was about, you know, and, um, it took a long time, you know, it took like four years or something for us to get it, to finally get to airing season one, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, you know, I'd work on it and, and I'd, I'd hit a, hit a dead end and I'd get frustrated, you know, I, and then it would sit there for a couple months and then I'd pick it back up again and I'd find a lead here and I'd, you know, go down there and get a dead end or, you know, I can't tell you how many people told me I couldn't host it. You know, a lot of people, dude, you can't be a host of a national television show. I'd be like, well, how come? Hey, you just don't have it. What's that? What do I not have? Because I think I can learn it. I'm pretty good at learning things, you know? Hey, you just don't have it. Okay. Well, I don't want to work with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's very relatable, especially like on this uh, podcast. Like I, neither myself or Greg ever did a podcast and I'm, I'm an extreme introvert. And so I was like, I, I, I had this idea. I wanted to do a podcast so I could talk to cool people like you and just meet people. Like I work all by myself in my Thank shop you. all day long. I, I, you know, it gets a little lonely. It's like, but I'm an extreme introvert. So this is like a terrifying thing. Every time, every week I'm like, I'm waiting for great. Greg to call me up and says, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. And I'd be like, thank you because I'm terrified <laughs> to do it. But then wait, then we get going, we hit record. It's always this little bumpy start to get good. The conversation going is super awkward. And then the conversation gets going and it's fine. And then it's fun and we have a good time. And then in the podcast, I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to do that again next time. 
So yeah, it's yeah. just like this whole thing of just trying to get going. And yeah, yeah, I don't know so, how much more I want to share about my personal fears of public speaking, but yeah, no, it's just no, no, the no. thing. You know, but so a lot of times we would visit people who, you know, they were very introverted and they they worked alone most of the time, and they, you know, you you, you we'd have like 11 people on our crew show up and you got cameras all over the place. You got lights all over the place. You got, you know, people on the walkie talkie thing and all that other stuff going on. And, uh, and then we'd start the interview process with them. And, and I could tell, you know, that they're uncomfortable and nervous and, and, but I would always just talk to them and just, just chill, you know, and, and get them. And, and you start talking about what you love and what you know, and you know, what you want to learn or what you have learned. and and talk about, you know, their story and their journey and, and, and then people warm up, you know, and, and then it's just two friends talking, you know, and we would cycle back and I would re-ask every single question that I asked them when they were nervous, I would, I would filter and sprinkle those back in later in the interview when we would get clean edits on them. Uh, and then yeah. we would take those better cuts and use them in the front. Yeah, I could you I know? could tell that on some episodes that some people might have been a little bit nervous, but when you would ask them, well, okay, well, show me how you do it. And that's the yeah. thing that they do every day. And so then they just like, okay, and they just go into their zone and just do their thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and uh, I don't know, like I said before, man, like, you know, deep down inside, you know, most people want to help other people, you know, and uh, yeah. Yeah, especially in the, yeah. uh, the world of, of makers, the people that are really passionate about making things. They love to share what they do. Like one of my friends, he stops by the shop and he'll ask me, he uh, has a desk job. So he's working with his hands like this foreign thing. And so every time he comes by, he asks me questions and he's like, like, oh, I'm sorry, I took up so much of your time. And it's like, no, it's cool. I, I love showing what I, what I yeah. know and how to do. Along those lines, uh, you have interviewed people from all different kinds of of crafts, um, mm -hmm. leatherworking, metalworking, blacksmithing. Uh, so you've been able to talk to all these people and try out their craft and mm -hmm. and have them show you uh, some tips and tricks that they do. If you were to uh, close up voodoo choppers and then close up your wood shop, is there a particular craft that you'd be like, yes, that's that's the next handcrafted thing I'm going to try? Ceramics. Ceramics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 If I if I if I wasn't going to work in wood any longer, and I wasn't going to work in metal any longer, I would go towards ceramics. I really enjoyed that. That in that episode was really a very powerful episode for me personally because my mom had just passed, and we had um, my mom was sick for a while. This was a number of years ago. My mom was sick for a while, and I was really close with my mom. And and we had I was I you know we were on the road filming, and then. We came back and we had to postpone, you know, because Ma was wasn't doing well. And um, Mom passed, and then I left a day or two later, and we were on the road filming again because we we had to maintain a schedule. And um, uh, David was the first episode we did at, at you know after after that happened to me, and so my head wasn't really right, you know, like I I, I had a lot on my mind, and um, and not a lot of people knew, like the crew knew what was going on. Uh, with me but you know not too many other people really knew and I think they told David too because I think his I think we had to reschedule him uh around that so um but it was like you know I I truly got lost in that uh world and and uh, it was very therapeutic for me in many ways you know like I became like really good friends with him you know that, that you know he's a good friend you know what I mean mm -hmm. 
I don't talk to him super often or anything like that, but uh, it was just one of those people you connect with, you know, and, and uh, when, when my scenes were shot, uh, done for the day, you know, or, or, or if I wasn't in a particular take or something like that, man, I was, I was off on the side on a, on a wheel. He had set up a little wheel off, off camera for me. And I, I was, I don't know how many bowls I made that day or nice. two days we were there or three days or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I can really, see how that's cool. very meditative too. Uh, one of my friends that I do an art show with occasionally is a, uh, a ceramic artist and just to watch him just, it's so effortlessly just to, to pull up the side of the bowl and yeah. he's he's like showing me ice so i do this and this is like oh my god that's so beautiful and then he just like takes his hand and goes crush and just smashes the thing and i was like what you do that for he's just like oh I just, man, i'll just make another one it's cool you know yeah. like it's whatever yeah so yeah i think glass blowing would be my thing that i would go into because it has like a little bit of everything that i really yeah. like uh there's a lot of chemistry involved so so i'm kind of into that kind of thing and then there's a lot of uh technical knowledge to know like a lot of techniques to make all the little braids and things but and then it also has a lot of sculpture flowing yeah flowing lines yeah yeah, yeah glass blowing is 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 definitely hard it's really tricky you know but yeah. it's fun it's 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 uh like you said there's a lot of science in there you know you were working with heat timing and heat cycles and stuff like that and that's always really cool you know? yeah it's it reminds me of metal work in the last, you know, yeah. from There's, that regard. All right, Greg, I, what, uh, what are your, what are you thinking if you couldn't uh, oh, uh, do metal working anymore? Oh my goodness. I can't pick. That's why I do them all. I mean, you just come over. You've been in my shop before. I've got yeah. a little area to do just about everything. And, uh, you know, from, yeah, from, from the metal working side, there's, I've done furniture that involves not glass blowing but but doing you know glass pieces in furniture and and i think to me the most interesting thing over time has been it, you know some artists would call it mixed media but putting together when you have some vision in your head putting together the right pieces for that vision and being able to do it i mean uh back again to to your point eric at at one point uh when i was restoring my car i was like I want these seat covers, I'll call them seat covers, but the seats, I want the upholstery to be this way with this fabric, with this uh, welting on it, with this stitch folded in this way and done this way. And I couldn't get anybody to do it, you know, because it's like, well, no, we have a pattern here that we do for these seats. It's like, yeah, but I don't want that. I want this. So I bought a sewing machine taught myself how to sew and did all the upholstery for that car. And it's like, there, there's a point at which you just... There, there's no other way to get it done than to take it into your hands and learn. So I can't pick. There's there's no way I could possibly pick what I would want to do next. I, I would say I have not done any forging. And I, I find that that and glass blowing are fascinating from the time uh, from the perspective that it's a timed event. <laughs> as as the metal starts to cool, you can do certain things and you can't do others. In glass blowing, I feel like it's a much more fragile egg. In that if you miss your window, you miss your window, you can try and reheat it. But if you've added color to the glass or done something else, it's going to start melting on you and yeah. become this awful cake batter that you can't deal with. <laughs> and I have I have the utmost respect for people in the glass studio. That is just a fascinating art. Yeah, for sure, dude. It's it's a it's a very magical experience. I think you know. Early, earlier, you mentioned you wrote a book, and uh, I have one of your books, the the Craftsman Legacy book, and you you threw a year out there, and I wasn't certain if the year was 
uh, referencing another book you wrote back in 99 or if something happened in the book that was that happened in 99? Do you have two books? No, just the one book. I don't know. I might have made a mistake. Uh, when or the book came out in 19, 2019 is when oh, the book 2019. came out. Oh, 2019. Okay. Yeah. I might have made a mistake. We've talked about doing another book and, and um, I, I don't know. I, I know. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> if it seems, it's a lot of, a lot of work, huh? To sit, sit down and write. Uh, it took us a couple of years. I think it was two years. I worked with a ghostwriter because I, I uh, don't necessarily enjoy writing myself. Yeah. You know, I, I talk the way I talk and, you know. Right. Well, sometimes that's part of the best thing. Like, especially when you get, uh, like a, I don't, I can't think of the proper name for what it is today, but like a book on tape, what is it, like an audio book and, yeah, yeah. and it's read by the author, man. I feel like I just stated myself with a book on tape, but uh, yeah, that was a while ago. <laughs> wow. way back there, but yeah, like the audio, <laughs> but like the audio book, like when the author reads it, like that's, those are the best ones to listen to when it's read by the author. Cause you really get to hear like their voice and the and their story and you can tell like when it's a part of the book that they're really passionate about that their that their intensity and their voice changes but yeah uh, I, I i read mine i narrated my book oh is and, is there uh, an audio version yeah 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 oh yeah yeah, yeah. I'm gonna... so the, the, the book came out was published by algonquin press and then the audio book was Tantor picked up the licensing for the audio book. All right. I'm going to have to get the audio version because I have hours in the shop. Um, oh, yeah. You yeah, know, just yeah, with yeah. earbuds in just all day. So, yeah. I listen to a lot of books, too. Yeah. yeah books, to books, books podcast, and uh, Pandora are the are the three main things that are filling my earbuds all day. Is... I, I rarely listen to music anymore in the shop. It's usually books uh, and some podcasts um very rarely you know i will i'll get in the mood for it and i'll put some country on or some some outlaw country or something or some some old jazz or something like that on you know but yeah not as often as i used to yeah i kind of go back and forth some days i'll i'll uh be really into a whole bunch of podcasts and i'll be like ah i just need to rock out and just go and i'll yeah but I, when i say rock out i don't listen to a lot of rock music rocking out to me is like count basie uh big band oh, yeah. kind of stuff you know? yeah 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 i love <laughs> yeah. count basie man yeah I, i've been a big jazz guy since i was a teenager and uh so i i i really enjoy a lot of the different genres and eras of jazz yeah um, up to the 70s that was my first attempt through uh through college uh my i play the saxophone and uh, i was gonna my plan was to be a music teacher so i could play uh um or so I could have like health insurance and like a steady income. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all summer I could just be out just jamming like with whoever. <laughs> That's awesome. That was dude. the that was the dream, but uh it didn't uh it didn't work out and uh uh making things with my hands just felt more more right. So I ended up going that uh, route. I bet you, I, you can still play a pretty mean sax. Uh you know, I I hardly played, but my daughter is learning to play the saxophone. And uh, she brought her sax to me one day and she's like, I think there's something wrong with it. Like it's not working right. And so I was like, okay, so let me give it a play. And it like started to come back. And then I was just like, and I was just going and she's like, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with the sax. And I said, yeah, you just, you just need to practice. <laughs> you, you need some more air. Awesome. So uh, yeah, it's so I got mine out and I, I play it. Maybe uh, once every other week when I have some free time, but not as much as I should or want to. Uh, I find it fascinating. You guys listen to things while you're in the shop. 
my shop is as dead quiet as it can be because I work, I am a desk job. I, I, I work and I'm on the phone and on the computer and in meetings all day. The last thing I want is any noise. I just want it quiet and cathartic <laughs> is how I say it. That's, that's my complete like unwind. I could, I could just do it for hours on end with, without hearing a peep out of anyone. Yeah. I get that fun. too, man. I get that too, you know, but I, I usually like to have something, uh, I don't know, just something going on, you know? Yeah. We, we've been on for just over an hour. Uh, do we want to do a quick little wrap up? Yeah. Or... Uh, any, any, every, every episode we have a guest on, I try to ask some kind of stupid, funny question, or at least if I could get, get an eye roll. So, uh, I, <laughs> I now, so you're, you're making things, uh, in metal and steel. And for me, sanding is the worst part uh, of the whole project. So is it worse to sand and steel for you or worse to sand and metal? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I mind either one of them. You know, I honestly, I know, you know, it, the thing is like sanding in the wood shop, both shops, really like it's having the right equipment, right? Like I, I tell you what, you know, I'm a big Festool guy. And the minute I used a Festool Orbital, I was all in because I know the difference between a very well balanced machine and a, and a capable machine and one that's not and you know i don't really mind either i love metal finishing uh you know i love being able to take metal from from a, a you know a 36 grit up to you know a 400 grit i think it's really cool that transition that it goes through you know um and i love file work absolutely love hand file work you know uh, so i don't know i, I dig it <laughs> think of a yeah. new corny question <laughs> that's, that's back yeah that's back to that zen z the zen thing yeah for me i've always been told that wood is carcinogenic so i wear a respirator but when i worked in a metal shop nobody wore a respirator grinding metal and i don't know if it's bad for you to breathe or because it just rusts out in your lungs and your body absorbs the iron but the smell of metal when you when you grind it or sand it i just I know it brings me That's back nasty. to when I was a kid, but uh, I like the smell of it. Yeah, you talked about using a cutoff earlier, and man, those fiber discs are nasty as hell. You I know, probably that, should be that, wearing a mask then, huh? That smell uh, is forever cemented in my head, you know. And I don't, I don't, I don't use the cutoff a ton. You know, maybe once a week I'll use it, but that smell is just—it sticks with you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Eric, it has been really great to uh, sit down and chat with you tonight and uh, really enjoyed having you on the program. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it too. Yeah, it was cool. Uh, it was just yeah. nice to chill, you know, and talk. Thank, uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Any Anytime we can get a craftsman with the level of experience that you've got and and some of the stories that you shared, I, I think it's just awesome to share with other people. Um so, so yeah, we'll just kind of wrap it up right there. Again, appreciate having you on the show. I am Greg Porter. You can find me on social media, YouTube, Greg's Garage, and Instagram, Greg's Garage, as well as Skyscraper Guitars on both media. All right. And then uh, special thanks to uh, Eric Gorgeous. You can find him on Instagram at Voodoo Choppers and the Craftsman Legacy. Also, his website's Voodoo Choppers and Craftsman Legacy. Uh, and then definitely check out his YouTube channel. He has done some great shows for uh, the Craftsman Legacy, interviewing some fantastic craftsmen uh, along the way. And I, and it might have correct to say that 
uh, you do have them from season one on up through, or was just a few? Nope. We've been working on migrating, you know, seasons one through four over to YouTube. We're putting them up as classics, um, five and six, and we're, we're getting ready to work on seven now. Those are all on, on YouTube. Awesome. Yeah. So definitely check out his YouTube channel, The Craftsman Legacy. And I'm Brian Benham. You can find me at brianbenham.com and that will have links to all my socials. And of course, you are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast and we'll have all those links uh, for all three of us over in the show notes there. Thanks for listening.